Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 14th, 2013. This is going to be an interesting program. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, and a lot of those things, when you, well, test them against the uh, Word of God in context, you discover that those statements being made are deficient, incorrect, in error, or actually they're the exact opposite of what God's Word really says and teaches. As a result of it, what we endeavor to do here at Fighting for the Faith is teach you how to open your Bible and test. Now, when it comes to testing and discerning whether or not something is correct or and true as opposed to false and twisted, Oftentimes, there's a subtle thing that the devil does, and the devil is always in the details, is that he, uh, the, the false teacher will, ha- will say a statement or define something that technically is correct, okay? But, but there is an omission. There's a bit of data that has been omitted or left out. For instance, okay, now I, I ought to do a program at least on this or on this topic. Uh, those of you who are familiar with N.T. Wright and his so-called new perspective on Paul. Now, there's different perspectives out there, so-called new perspectives. But N.T. Wright has kind of um, built upon uh, Dunn, Christopher Stendhal, and, and others. And uh, and he's kind of the, the apex now of that particular wedge issue, the so-called new perspectives on Paul, and N.T. Wright has his own perspective. And when you look at or you read uh, N.T. Wright's works on Paul, what you will find is, is that he has a definition of the gospel that although is correct, 
it's deficient because not all the data is there. In fact, I did a program with uh, Brandon House on this topic uh, yesterday. But basically, when if you were to you know inquire of N.T. Wright via his writings, um, especially on the New Perspectives, what is the definition of the gospel? He would he would say that the definition of the gospel is the uh, proclamation or announcement that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Well, so what's the problem? Ah, well, see, I'm glad you asked because when you look at that particular statement, it's not that anything he said is wrong. It's that what he said is incomplete. And so if we were to define the gospel... Which, by the way, is something that you, uh, this is a little bit of uh, biblical information that you ought to have ready at at a moment's notice. In fact, the, one of the critical key passages that we often go to here at Fighting for the Faith is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so here's the idea, okay? If somebody were to ask me, Chris, define the gospel, I would per- personally say to them, listen, I can't define such a thing. Let's look at how God's word defines it. It's best if we keep me out of it. And let's take a look at what the clear teaching of the word of God says. Okay, now remember, N.T. Wright's definition. Okay, N.T. Wright's definition is the gospel is the pronouncement that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That's how he defines the gospel over and again in this, the different works that he's written uh, pertaining to the new perspective on Paul. But see if you can notice what's missing when I give you the biblical definition of the gospel. And by the way, how do I know this is the biblical definition? (laughs) Because the Bible actually says it. Okay, here's the idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll start at verse 1. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Mm Mm-hmm. So verse 1 is keying you in here. So Paul here is going to remind the church at Corinth, the gospel that he preached to them. And here's what it is. He says, he says, the gospel I preached to you, the gospel that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to, well, unless, of course, you believed in vain. Okay, so that tells you what he's about to do. He's going to remind them of the gospel, the gospel they received, the gospel in which they stand, and the gospel by which they are being saved if they hold fast to it, right? So here's the definition of the gospel, starting at verse 3. For I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Stop there for a second. Stop, 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 stop. Okay, Details, details, details. Notice that verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 15 begins with, For I delivered to you, which, what has he delivered? The gospel. Uh, what, uh, that, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, Paul points out in other places that the gospel that he preached was not a gospel that was given to him by a human being, but was actually received via a revelation from Christ. I would cross-reference Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. Now, it's important to note also here that what you're going to see in verses 3 through 7, or you know, uh, 6 or 7, is what many argue is one of the very, 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 very first creeds within Christianity. It has 
all of the hallmarks and and language and wording uh, of being a creed, and that would be you know a brief statement of what it is that you know you believe, credo meaning I believe. And so it has all of the formulaic words there. In fact, I would uh, point to the work of uh, Gary Habermas of Liberty University on this. He's written on this quite extensively, and I think his scholarship on this is impeccable. But what's going on here? Paul is basically saying that this isn't my gospel. In verse 3, he's saying this is a gospel that I received, Okay, that he passed on as of first importance. So this is not Paul's gospel. This is a gospel that he received. This isn't something he concocted. This is something that he was given. And because of the fact that what follows here is one of the early creeds within Christianity, then it follows that the gospel, the definition of the gospel is not Pauline, it's not Johannine, it's not uh, Petrine. Uh, that would mean it's not, uh, it's, it, this is not Paul's theology or John's theology or Peter's theology. Instead, what we're, he- we're going to get here is not a Pauline definition of the gospel. What we're going to get is a Catholic definition of the gospel. Now, that is a word that, that uh, most Protestants run from. Uh, as soon as you throw it out at the table, they go, <laughs> Don't do that. Um, I'm not talking about Roman Catholic, which, by the way, is an oxymoron. Okay, I'm talking about Catholic in its old sense of the word, meaning universal. Okay, uh, when you read the writings of the Church Fathers, they refer to Christianity as the Catholic faith. Why? Not because they're into popes and praying to Mary and praying to the saints and all that kind of nonsense. No. They, co- they constantly refer to Christianity as the Catholic faith because they understood it to be the universal faith. This was applicable to both Jews and Gentiles. Understand that in, ancient, in the ancient world, uh, you know, prior to the concept of a Catholic or universal faith, well, religions were territorial. Gods lived in particular places. There were borders or rivers or things that they didn't cross. And so when you would cross a boundary or go to another country or cross a river, you would be leaving the domain of one deity, in quotes, they're not really gods, and then into the domain of another deity, in quotes, they're not really gods. And so the idea is, is that religions oftentimes were considered regional or uh, tied to a particular tribe of people or a particular family or culture or community. Um, But Christianity is different than all of that. And Christianity throughout its history has always referred to itself as a Catholic faith in that it's universal. And by that, that means that all nations, everybody in all nations is, they are, they are actually in reality um, called to believe the same thing. This is a universal faith that we proclaim to all nations, to every tribe, every people, Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter what, you know, what your skin color is or where you grew up, whether you're in the East, the Middle East, or the West. doesn't matter. Christianity is true, and all of its doctrines are true and applicable to every human being the same way in all times, in all places. That's the idea. And so... 
the I, what coming back then to the point that I was making is that when we look then here at the definition of the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is making clear this gospel he preached was not something he concocted, but this is a Catholic, and I mean universal, confession and, and definition of the gospel. And here's the definition. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter, and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the other apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. To just really narrow it down, like stick it in the dehydrator, if you would, and you know, burn off everything else. What's what we have at the bottom here at the gospel here is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And you can even cross references uh, raised from the grave, and that has to do with our justification. So now, Hearing now what the definition of the gospel, the gospel, which means good news, it's the good news that Christ, the the anointed one, Jesus, the Messiah, died for our sins and was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Plain and simple. That's the good news. And why is this good news? Well, because the problem that we all face is that we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. We're sinful by nature. And we are all subject to and liable to um, facing the wrath of God justly for our sin and rebellion against him, right? But the good news is that Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So I repeated it several times. Now let me read to you again from N.T. Wright what the definition of the gospel is. The gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Notice what's missing. See, that's where discernment comes in. What's missing from N.T. Wright's definition of the gospel is the proclamation that Christ died for our sins. In other words, N.T. Wright's definition of the gospel is deficient. It's deficient, even though his definition of the gospel, all of its parts are correct and true, not all of the moving pieces of the gospel are there. So it's deficient due to the fact that it has omitted data, and that's a danger. So part of the job of learning how to listen with discernment to what somebody is teaching is to learn Well, let me put it this way. You're going to have to know your Bible well enough. You're going to have to know your Bible well enough to know when somebody is teaching you correct theology that's deficient because it's missing important pieces. That's part of the job of uh, of all Christians as they're called to be Bereans and to test all things. Something for you to consider. Now with that, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, This first hour is a little bit all over the map, but, um, oh man, I got to tell you though, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times, 
Well, he's as regular as clockwork, and uh, you know, <laughs> you know. Keep in mind, like I've noted yesterday, that um, the new pope, Pope Francis the uh, First, was elected on three thirteen thirteen. And I was tweeting out and sending out on Facebook, you know, basically uh, messages to the effect of can't wait to hear what William Tapley has to say about this and what the prophetic numerology is all about. And, well, (laughs) William Tapley, he put out a kind of a short little video that's uh, that I would consider a a down payment um, (laughs) on a soon to be large deposit that he's going to make. Let's just put it that way. So we're going to take a look at that. Um, and then what we're going to do, and I'm looking at the time here, what we're going to end up doing is switching gears uh, after the break. And I want to take a little bit of a look at the question of who are the Jesuits? Uh, the reason I ask the question is because um, Pope Francis I is the first openly um, Jesuit pope. And you need to know a little bit about the Jesuits. This, as a Lutheran, um, you know, finding that out that uh, that well, Pope Francis the first is a Jesuit. Um, well, let's put it this way, okay? Let me use a metaphor that uh, that uh, that culturally makes a lot of sense to folks. Um, the Jesuits are to Lutherans as the Sith are to Jedi. Does that make sense? Um, the <laughs> that's the best way I could put it is that uh, historically the Jesuits have been the ones whom Lutheran dogmaticians and apologists have done uh, quite a bit of extensive theological battle with, and uh, and this is a, 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 a well kind of a substrata of Roman Ca- uh, Roman Catholicism that is well let's just say violently and um, and completely opposed to the Reformation, and these folks are mili- have been militantly from the beginning working against the Reformation. In fact, oftentimes when we talk about Jesuits, it falls under the broader historical ca- category of counter-Reformation. So we'll take a look at this idea, who are the Jesuits, and then what I want to do is apply this principle that we I, I opened up the program with of Finding out what's missing um, to one of the first statements made by the brand new Pope, Pope Francis. And uh, with the election of the new Pope, I have, oh man, my RSS reader now has uh, several new Roman Catholic news sources. I I just, I don't want to talk about it. But anyway, we'll, we'll take a look at one of the early uh, first statements made by the newly elected Pope. And then it, what we'll do is we'll switch gears in hour number two. We're going to do a standard sermon review today. We'll be going back to Carrie Shook's uh, church out there at uh, Fellowship of the Woodlands. And uh, we're going to be reviewing a sermon by him. And, I'll, and This one's a little bit different. Normally I worry about and I don't particularly enjoy reviewing Carrie Shook's sermons because he's the only guy that I know who is literally capable of sucking all of the testosterone out of any given sermon, even when he's purposely trying to preach to men. And so listening to him just bugs me in that sense. But in this particular case, this was a sermon topic where he didn't actually do that. But the name of the sermon should uh, pique your interest. The name of the sermon is, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, spoiler alert, the answer to the question is there are no good people. That's the biblical answer. Um, But Carrie Shook apparently doesn't understand that. 
which tells you something about his theology and his uh, biblical training or lack thereof. So keep that in mind as we get into hour number two today. But since we have <clears throat> news regarding the, uh, the 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 newly elected Pope from William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, I must do this. That's great. It starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, an airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world to its own needs. Dummy, serve your own needs. Beat it up and knock speed. Front, no strength. The ladder starts to clatter with fear. Fight down. High fire in a fire. Representatives have engaged in a government for hire in a combat site. Let the West coming in a hurry with the furies beating down your And that's our William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times update music. So as um, expected, uh, William Tapley was really early to uh, comment on the election of the new pope. And uh, his latest video is entitled, Did We Get a Marian Pope? A Marian, that would be you know uh, a pope that prays to, well, the Virgin Mary and a Marian Pope and things of that nature. So to give us all the prophetic insights regarding the election of the brand new Pope, Pope Francis I, here is William Tapley. Hang on, here we go. This will be just a very brief commentary on the election of our new Pope, Pope Francis I. And so far, I am very encouraged. He certainly seems like a very good man, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean he will make a good pope. Okay, I got, I got, I just got to stop right there. He seems like a good man. I saw him. He, he's what seventy something years old. You know what he looks like to me? He looks like an aging sinner. Just like I'm an aging. Sin- he doesn't look like a good man. Um, he looks like an aging sinner. Now the question is: Is there a such thing as a good man out there? I only know one, and that was Jesus. And that guy, because he's getting old and looking like he's about ready to cash in his chips, um, that proves that he's getting ready to pay the wages of his sin, which is death. So everyone's saying that he's a good man, and I'm saying, really, are there any of us that are good? We continue. Will he be strong enough to challenge the forces of the Antichrist? And I was inspired to... (laughs) Now, <laughs> yeah, if you're not if you're not sure why I'm snickering there, will will the new pope um, have what it takes the strength to challenge the forces of the Antichrist? Yeah, I should send William Tapley a copy of the uh, Lutheran Confessions. <laughs> he may be disappointed with the conclusions there because um, asking the pope to fight the forces of the Antichrist, yeah, that's not going to happen because the office that he holds himself actually is, well, an office of the Antichrist. Read in the book of Esther about Mordecai, because as I've always said, 
Mordecai is a precursor of Petrus Romanus, the last pope. Is Pope Francis I, Petrus Romanus, a good pope, or is he an anti-pope? In other words, the false prophet. Let's read the book of Esther, chapter 18, chapter 8, excuse me, verse number 15. Let's do that, yeah. And Mordecai, going forth out of the palace, and from the king's presence, shone in royal apparel. This reminds me so much of Pope Francis greeting the crowds in St. Peter's. To wit, a violent... So, (laughs) Mordecai is a foreshadow of the Pope? And sky color, wearing a golden crown on his head and clothed with a cloak of silk and purple. And all the city rejoiced and was glad. Now, what's very interesting is that Mordecai appeared to the public this way on the 13th of the month. There's the numerology coming into play. I knew he'd be Johnny on the spot with us. So apparently, because Mordecai was paraded around in royal attire on the 13th of a month, and the new pope was elected on the 13th of March, we'll see, there you go. The two just is like hand in glove. I think that's very significant. 13, of course, is also a Fatima day. A, a what? <laughs> a Fatima day. Yeah, well, I have those. I have fat days pretty much every day. And in the book of Esther, Mordecai appeals to Esther, who symbolizes Mary, who appeals to Ahasuerus, who symbolizes Jesus. And a- so we got the entire uh, new trinity, the, the, the Pope, Mary, and Jesus. The, all foreshadowed in the story of Asuerus, Esther, and Mordecai. Ay, ay, ay. We continue. Of course, Jesus crushes the Antichrist through the prayers of Mary's rosary. Uh, of course, everybody knows that. All you have to do is read your Bible and, you know, you don't see that in there. And I am very hopeful that Pope Francis I will be a good Pope and will lead the church in these times of tribulation. Thank you for watching. I'm hoping that Pope Francis I sends a personal correspondence to William Tapley the Third Gill of the Apocalypse, kindly asking him to take his YouTube channel down, and you know, hopefully there will be some kind of a papal edict revoking his YouTube privileges. I think that might be a good thing for William Tapley. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on uh, Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We come back. We're going to take a, just a quick look at who are the Jesuits and why, what that signifies with the new pope and how to discern papal statements. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now.
Holidays Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. These planes would give us passengers more leg room. Oh. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, what in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt and make sure your seat back and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight, which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we're about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close.
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. It's not enough to tell the truth about God. You have to tell the whole truth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. Uh, click on one of them. One of them says, join our crew. The other says, uh, you know, donate. When you uh, click on the join our crew button, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Moving along... It's time for a Roman Catholic Church papal update. 
right. That's <laughs> I'll be using that uh, moving forward here for our papal updates. But yeah, that that should telegraph to you what I think about the fact that we have a Jesuit, an openly an open Je- Jesuit as the uh, the new Pope, Pope Francis the first. Now I understand that the guy is a man of the people. He is a good guy, and that. Uh, well, you know, he's conservative theologically, and I mean, that's all well and good as far as Roman Catholicism goes, but the Jesuit thing ought to, uh, well, cause you to pause and consider. Uh, I want to read to you a portion from uh, Martin Chemnitz's uh, The uh, Examination of the Council of Trent, where he divulges a little bit of information about the Jesuits. Like I said, Jesuits are to Lutherans as Sith are to Jedi. That's the best way I could put it. Uh, But here's what Martin Chemnitz writes uh, from the preface to his uh, examination of the Council of Trent. This is page 25 of the CPH edition of it. Here's what it says. It is now three years since I set forth in brief form for our readers the chief parts of the teachings of the Jesuits on the basis of a published document of their own, with the intention that this sect, which was described as only recently established by the Roman pontiff, for the specific purpose of destroying the churches that embrace the pure teaching of the gospel. Yeah, um, the... <clears throat> the <clears throat> The Jesuit order, uh, here Chemnitz says, was established by the Roman pontiff, that would be the pope of his time, um, for the express purpose of destroying the churches that embrace the pure teaching of the gospel. You've got to keep in mind at the Council of Trent that uh, the Roman Catholic Church, which, by the way, Roman Catholic, that's an oxymoron. Uh, Roman is, well, Rome's a region, is a very specific city. Catholic means universal. There's no such thing. Anyway, yeah, that's an oxymoron, but... Here we've got uh, Martin Chemnitz is basically uh, divulging that the Jesuit order, this sect within Roman Catholicism, was specifically set up to destroy churches that preach the gospel. And at the Council of Trent, the gospel itself was anathematized. If you believe that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, you, according to the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent, are anathema. You're damned. You're not going to make it. And so, you know, it makes me wonder if, if anyone will be able to, uh, you know, maybe question um, uh, Pope Francis I and find out if he's a, kind of a kinder and gentler uh, Jesuit, you know, or if he's of the uh, the standard type. But anyway, let me continue reading here. Um, so there, this for destroying the churches that embrace the pure teaching of the gospel that, that might be made known to our churches not only according to their name and garb, but in the way Christ in John 10 verses uh, 1 through 18 teaches us to distinguish the true shepherd from the stranger, namely by the kind of teaching they profess and proclaim. I merely set forth the main points without a longer explanation that I might give them occasion to explain their position more fully themselves, but out of that whole sect or conspiracy which they themselves call a society, no one has until now been willing to come down into the arena. That was up to that point. But, uh, you know, since Chemnitz penned those words, uh, there's been plenty of Lutheran and um, Jesuit <clears throat> exchanges. The list has put a lot, a lot of ink has been spilled. And in reality, a lot of blood, uh, for real human blood, has also been spilled um, with the theological battles uh, between, uh, well, those who hold to the Reformation teachings and those who are Jesuits. So um, from the ChristianNews.net website, I thought they did a decent job here, worth passing along. 
Um, they, they, they have a headline that reads, Who are the Jesuits and why the first Jesuit pope could signify the new evangelization of Christians? Why the first Jesuit pope could signify the new evangelization of Christians? Uh, the uh, Christian uh, ChristianNews.net writes and says, As the conclave in Rome elected the first Jesuit pope to power yesterday, the move has turned the spotlight on the order of the Jesuits and how the new pope may usher in the new evangelization of Christians and the world at large. The Society of Jesus, which later became known simply as the Jesuits, was founded in 1534 by Ignatius Loyola, a Spaniard like Pope Francis. The mission of the organization was to spread Roman Catholicism throughout the world and to protect the power of the Pope and the practices of Roman Catholicism from the Protestant Reformation so that the Pope may remain God's authority on the earth. Quote, we that we may be altogether of the same mind and in conformity if the church shall have to find anything to be black which our eyes appear which appears to our eyes to be white we ought in like manner to pronounce it to be black Loyola, Loyola wrote in the rules for thinking with the church that's right a direct quote that uh, if you are looking out at something and it's and it it looks black to you but the church has said that it is white well then it's white this is how loyal the <clears throat> Jesuits are to their ideas and uh, and Roman Catholic dogma. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, which resulted in the Counter-Reformation by the Jesuits, was sparked by a monk and scholar named Martin Luther, who served the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. As Luther began studying the scriptures after he was appointed to a chair of biblical theology, he became consumed with a passion to discover what it meant to be a Christian. In the Catholic Church, he had seen men trying to earn their way to heaven, but as he read the Bible, he realized that salvation was through faith in Christ alone. Actually, it's worse than that. Um, Luther tried to earn his way to heaven uh, by works himself. In fact, he was a uh, Augustinian monk, and uh, you know, in, if anyone tried to earn salvation via monkery, it would have been Martin Luther. It's not that he saw people trying; he himself was trying himself. Um, we continue, quote, I think I've found the truth at last. The classic film Martin Luther uh, depicts Luther as stating to a church official, quote, by faith man lives and is righteous, not by what he does for himself, be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages of Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Following the revelation, Luther began to challenge the doctrines of, Roman, of the Roman Catholic Church, compiling a list of 95 theses, where he asserted that Catholic doctrine contradicted the scriptures. He was later summoned to appear before a meeting of the church and was declared a heretic and excommunicated. As Luther began to spread the gospel throughout Germany, and others joined in to take the scriptures to the, uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth, decrying Catholic doctrine, the order of the Jesuits was formed, also formed, to spread Roman Catholicism. It soon became an effort to stop Protestantism and take the world by storm for the Catholic Church. Quote, As the object of the society was the propagation and strengthening of Catholic faith everywhere, the Jesuits naturally endeavored to counteract the spread of Protestantism. That's a direct quote from the Catholic uh, Encyclopedia. Quote, they became the main instruments of the counter-reformation, the reconquest of southern and western Germany and Austria for the church, and the preservation of the Catholic faith 
in France and other countries were due chiefly to their exertions. Loyola later composed the Jesuit constitution outlining the laws, mindsets, and behaviors that Jesuits are to follow, namely putting the Pope first in all things. The nations that Jesuits converted were required to likewise submit to the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. While the Jesuits are no longer seen as the army that they once were, their influence remains throughout the world, including through the educational system which trains devout Catholics to infiltrate all kinds of society by giving them the skills to work in a variety of fields. Quote, The Jesuit schools of the 16th century played an important part in winning back to Catholicism a number of European countries, which had for a time been predominantly Protestant, notably Poland and Lithuania reports, state, quote, Today, Jesuit colleges and universities are located in over 100 nations around the world. Seattle University notes that it, quote, is one of the 28 Jesuit universities in the United States. Other colleges and universities include Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, Loyola University in New Orleans, Louisiana, the University of San Francisco in California, Le Mans uh, College in Syracuse, New York, and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. The Jesuits also continue to be a highly evangelistic and missional sect that some believe are secretly pervasive in their spread of Catholicism. Many Catholic missionaries are sent throughout the world to convert the masses to the religion, and there remains a contention with Protestantism as the Roman Catholic Church is referred to by some as the only true church. With the election of Cardinal uh, Jorge Mario uh, Bergoglio as the first Jesuit pope in history, a number of Jesuit organizations have enthusiastically applauded the move. Quote, It has been a truly historic day for the Society of Jesus as we learned that our brother Cardinal Jorge Maria Bergoglio was selected to lead the uh, Catholic Church as Pope Francis I. Gregory F. Lucy of the Association of Jesuit Colleges and Universities said in a statement following the announcement of the new pope, quote, As Jesuits, we emphasize social justice in our ministry, and we are gratified to have a leader who will continue to live out this mission on a global stage. We pray that the pope's ground, uh, grounding in Ignatian spirituality, this would be Ignatius Loyola, will guide him as he carries out this extraordinary calling to lead the church of the 21st century. Quote, the Jesuits of the New Orleans province rejoice with the whole church as the election of Pope Francis I, stated Mark A. Lewis of the New Orleans uh, Jesuit branch. Quote, while none of us know him personally, we are pleased uh, at his solidarity with the poor. Barack Obama also issued a statement yesterday regarding Berlegolio's appointment. Quote, on behalf of the American people, Michelle and I offer our warm wishes to His Holiness Pope Francis as he ascends to the chair of St. Peter and begins his papacy, he wrote. Just as I appreciated our work with Pope Benedict XVI, I look forward to working with His Holiness to advance peace, security, and dignity for our fellow human beings, regardless of their faith. We join with people around the world in offering our prayers for the Holy Father as he begins the sacred work of leading the Catholic Church in our modern world. As Jesuits take a vow of poverty, Bergoglio, who who became a Jesuit in 1958 and was promoted in 1973, was stated to have lived very simply in Argentina, riding the bus to work and living in an apartment where he cooked his own meals. While he reportedly opposes homosexuality and abortion, he has also chastised the church for being too strict in some areas. Quote, in our ecclesiastical region, there are priests who don't baptize the children of single mothers because... They weren't conceived in the sanctity of marriage. He once stated chastising his priests, These are today's hypocrites. 
those who clericalize the church, those who separate the people of God from salvation, and this poor girl who, rather than returning the child to uh, sender, had the courage to carry it to the world, must wander from parish to parish so that it's baptized. Berlegolio was also sued in 2005 after being accused of conspiring with the junta in 1976 to kidnap two Jesuit priests. He denies the allegations. While it is unknown as to exactly how Berlegolio's identification as a, Genef- as a Jesuit will play out in his role as Pope, his first speech to the people subtly referenced his Jesuit leanings. Quote, First and foremost, I would like to pray for our emeritus Pope Benedict XVI that Christ and the Madonna watch over him, he stated. And again, remarking today, remarking said, tomorrow I want to go pray to the Madonna that she may protect Rome. According to reports, Jesuits refer to the Virgin Mary as Madonna della Strada because of Berlegolio's emphasis on Mary in his first speech and making prayer to the Madonna one of his first acts as Pope. Some state that it is possible that he may seek to make Mary co-redemptrix as Pope John Paul II once did. That move would thus recognize Mary as part of the redemption of mankind. Quote, the revered mother of God joined with Jesus Christ in one and the same decree of predestination as the whole associate of the divine redeemer, Pope Pius XII once stated. Quote, he may resurface that attempt, Mike Gendron, or Gendron, of proclaiming the uh, gospel ministries told Christian News Network, if he goes this route and makes her co-redemptrix, it would be unprecedented. Dr. Terrence Tilley of Fordham University's Department of Theology states that Berlegolio's selection of the name of Pope Francis might be telling, quote, we don't know what it means, but it certainly is the, is the name of St. Francis of Assisi and Francis Xavier, the co-founder of the Order of the Jesuits, both of whom were missionaries, he said. I think that makes a big difference and suggests that he's going to be strong for the new evangelization. Gendron agreed, quote, the goal of every pope has been to make the entire world Catholic, he stated. They're into world dominion. Their eschatology is that Jesus won't return until the world is Roman Catholic. Already some Protestants are embracing the Roman Catholic Church in the appointment of the new Pope. As previously reported, Rick Warren, author of the best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, and global, globally influential mega-church leader, was enthusiastic about the election of the new Pope. Uh, Warren called for fasting and prayer this week for the Cardinals that they would be voting on the matter. After Berlegolio was appointed as successor, Warren tweeted to his over 900,000 followers, Welcome Pope Francis Cardinal Jorge Mario Berlegolio. You have our prayers. He included the hashtag Habemus Papam, meaning we have a Pope. Oh, man. No, Mr. Warren, uh, Christians do not have a pope, remarked one reader. You might have a pope, Mr. Warren, but followers of Jesus Christ do not. Okay, so let's just put it this way. You can sum it all up like this. This ought to be an interesting papacy to watch. (laughs) As a Lutheran, I am on high alert. And this comes back to, again, to the point that I was making earlier today, Discernment isn't necessarily about whether or not somebody's statement is biblically correct. In fact, it's possible for you to say something that's biblically true, and yet certain important information is missing. It's omitted. It's not there. As a result of the fact that it's not there, even though the statement is technically true, it's not, quote, true enough. Does that make sense? (laughs) So let me give you an example of that. From the Catholic News Agency... Um, of course, the Catholic News Agency is just lit up uh, since uh, 
the conclave convened a few days ago, and of course since yesterday it's been going crazy. But the Catholic News Agency, which you can find at catholicnewsagency.com, has a headline. Here's what it says. Without Christ crucified, churches, ch- church, a pitiful organization, Pope says. So this is one of the first statements made by uh, Pope Francis. And so the dateline is uh, Vatican City, March 14th, 2013. The day after he was elected, Pope Francis emphasized that every believer, including bishops, cardinals, and popes, must proclaim Jesus crucified to be true Christians. I'm going to stop right there. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, in order to be a true Christian, you must proclaim Jesus Christ as crucified. Yes, but this goes back to the point I was making earlier. There's something missing here. It's Jesus crucified for our sins. Not just that he was crucified, but that he was crucified for our sins. We continue, though, quote, We can build so many things, but if we don't confess Jesus Christ, well, then something is wrong. We will become a pitiful organization, but not the church spouse of Christ, Pope Francis said in his March 14th homily. Quote, He who doesn't pray to God prays to the devil, the Pope added in an apparent quote. Pope Francis made his remarks at the Mass to close the conclave on Thursday evening in the Sistine Chapel with all the cardinal electors present. He asserted that the common theme in all three of today's scripture readings is movement. The first reading, the movement of walking. The second reading, the movement of building. And the third, the gospel is is in confession, to walk, to build, to confess. Quote, but it's not such an easy thing, he noted. In walking and building in confession, sometimes there are shocks. There are movements, movements that are not proper to our journey. There are movements that drag us backwards. Pope Francis then turned his thoughts to the gospel reading from Matthew, in which Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Quote, This is the same Peter who confesses to Christ, who says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I will follow you, but let's not speak of crosses. That has nothing to do with it. I will follow you with other possibilities without the cross, he said, characterizing Peter's reaction. Quote, and if we walk without the cross, how much do we build without the cross? And when we confess Christ without the cross, then we are not disciples of the Lord. The Pope then applied his words to himself and his brother cardinals, saying, quote, we might be bishops, priests, cardinals, and popes, but we are not disciples of the Lord if we leave the cross behind. Quote, I would like all of us, after these days of grace, to have the courage, precisely the courage, to walk in the presence of the Lord and with the cross of the Lord, to edify the church in the blood of the Lord poured out on the cross and confess the only glory, that of Christ crucified. And in this way, the church will move forward, he says, as he finished his homily. Okay? Now, I'll be blunt. I mean, it would be difficult to criticize uh, Perry Noble if he were to speak so bluntly about the cross. Okay, it would be very difficult indeed. Um, and it's not easy to be critical of the new pope, except for this. My admonition to you as you listen to him, and considering the fact that he's a Jesuit, I think he's part of his agenda is going to be to evangelize people who call themselves Christians, who are Protestants. And I'll tell you this, uh, this guy is n- n- no, he's not a hack theologian. And so somebody who speaks like this to most uh, biblically illiterate um, American evangelicals, this guy's going to sound biblical. But 
again, the, the issue is not what he says as to whether or not it's biblical. It's, is there anything missing? Is there anything missing here? And the answer is, yeah, there's something really important missing because you, you can talk about crosses all the, all day long. But if you're not talking about the crucified Savior who w- died for the sins of the world, who was crucified for our sins, but you're just talking about the crucified Jesus, but that his the theolo- the theological statement for our sins is omitted, well, then you might want to consider that Maybe the uh, person making the statement is an error. Maybe maybe they are an error, and the reason why they are an error is because it's not whether or not what they're saying is technically biblical. The te- question is, is it biblically complete? That's what you want to be looking for. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We'll be right back. Sermon review on the other side of the break. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipeout. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. 
They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no. I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. You might need your Bible, too. Just saying. I'm going to try to do a counter-teaching in the middle of this sermon. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via fellowship church in the woodlands texas carrie shook presiding the name of said sermon is entitled why do bad things happen to good people which by the way is one of the important questions that any christian pastor needs to be able to give a solid biblical answer to. And we're going to see if Carrie Shook gives us the biblical answer to this question. Because the biblical answer is really clear. Bad things do not happen to good people. Only bad people. In other words, we ain't good. So, yeah, that's spoiler alert there here. Let me go ahead and kill the music, and uh, here we go. Without any further ado, here's Kerry Shook and his sermon entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? See if uh, this is the biblical answer to this important question. Here we go. In order to have a real faith, I have to struggle with tough questions and work through them. In order to have a strong faith that doesn't crumble at the first sign of testing, I have to grapple with the most difficult questions. Now, we went out on the street and we asked people, if you had one chance to ask God a question, what would it be? And we got all kinds of answers. Um, We put up the pictures here. Robin says, why don't my grown children listen to me when I give them advice from my experience with God? Why don't my grown children listen to me is a good question. Um, Let's see. Try to pick some that never seen before. Amber says, my father just passed away. Why would this happen now? Mm. So many difficult questions. Alyssa says, why cancer? You know, I would have to say that those last two are kind of a theme that ran through a lot of the questions. The number one asked question had to do with the topic of suffering. You know, it'd be questions like why cancer or why does God allow an earthquake in Haiti where innocent children die? 
Or why does a drunk driver who's been partying all night kill a single mom who's driving to work in the morning? Why? When Chris and I were in Banda Aceh right after the tsunami hit, and we were there to deliver aid and relief for orphans because of the gifts that you had given. But I remember going to one place there on the coastline where we saw this bridge that went out into the ocean. And Chris asked, where does this bridge go to? What happened here? And they said, well, this went to a village of 10,000 people, but it's totally underwater now. Everyone was killed. And it just took our breath away. And we had to ask, why, God? Why? I think that the question that rocks many people's faith and disturbs every one of our souls can be kind of tied all together with this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Even more disturbing to me is why good things happen to bad people. That bothers me a lot more. And the Bible doesn't give us all the answers to this really difficult question, but the Bible does say several things. It says that God is a good and loving God, that God doesn't cause evil, that God is a loving God. He doesn't cause bad things to happen to us. But He has definitely given us this powerful thing called free will. He gives us the power to choose whether or not we want to love Him back, whether or not we want to do the right things, whether or not we want to obey Him or sin. Because if God created us with a computer chip in our brain that made us do the right things all the time and never sin and always love God back, then it really wouldn't be love because love is not love unless you have the power to choose not to love. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Does Is that a biblical argument or a philosophical argument? Well, that's not a biblical argument, so that would actually fall into the realm of philosophy. Okay, Now, let me ask a, a helpful diagno, d- diagnostic question here, and that would be this. Is the reason why you are a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you are a sinner? Now, you'll notice based upon how Kerry Shook dealt with the question and then his first crack at the answer, that Kerry Shook, you know, even though he hasn't said this, I think you can make the argument based upon what he said. He thinks that we are sinners because we sin, rather than what the scriptures teach, that the reason why we sin is because we are sinners. And this is the uh, the biblical doctrine known as the doctrine of original sin, that basically teaches that uh, since the fall uh, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell and they, they disobeyed God, what happened is is that humanity's nature was corrupted and was fallen, and uh, as a result of it, we were made sinners, and that's the reason why we sin. So first and foremost, sin is a condition, not a behavior, and it the condition shows itself through what you do. When you commit sins, you do so because your nature is sinful and corrupt. Let me give you a biblical passage that will help you in this. So if you have your Bible, open up Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to start at verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, and I'm going to start with context here. Here's what it says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now this is good news because you and I qualify here, and I'll explain as we 
flesh this passage out, how we qualify. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, that means to be declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by his death, by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And now here comes the, the critical part. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, and sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Okay, How did sin come into the world? Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. He's responsible. When he rebelled against God, every descendant of Adam has a broken and corrupted nature that is sinful, plain and simple. The reason why you sin is because of your broken and corrupt nature that you've inherited from your parents, who they've inherited from their parents, and they inherited from their parents going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is why the historical Adam is so important, because the historical Adam, not only is he true, but without him, you don't have a real explanation as to what, you know, how sin and evil came into the, into the equation for humanity. And furthermore, our sinful nature you know, it has put the entire world under a curse, and the entire creation is experiencing frustration and futility as a result of our sin. So the idea is this, is that Scripture teaches that sin came into the world through one man, through the one man's disobedience, and that would, and that's the explanation as to why bad things happen. The reason why bad things happen is because that's what happens to bad, sinful people. Sinful people like me and like you. Let me continue reading. Verse 15, But the free gift, that would be the free gift of salvation, is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more have, gra have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the, 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 here's the idea, is that you and I are sinners because we've inherited the same nature as Adam and Eve. 
Okay, His sin is in fact imputed to us. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is why the Apostle Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3 through 3, says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 14, 2 through 3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is what Scripture says. And so the idea here is is that all of us, all of us have inherited a sinful nature, and there is none of us who are righteous. So when somebody asks the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The biblical answer is that there are none who are good. What we are seeing happening in the world, all of the evil that exists, this is not evil that is happening to innocent people, but to sinners. And the very fact that children die... The fact that children die shows us objectively that they are not innocent. They are born with Adam's sin and Adam's sinful nature. This is why bad things happen. We brought this on ourselves by our rebellion against God. So what's the solution then? The solution is Christ Jesus, the one who was good the only of one of us who was good who was righteous he goes to the cross in our place in our stead and god laid on him the iniquity of us all so the idea then is this is just like adam's sin has been imputed to all of us So Christ's righteousness, when we're brought to faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot working on here theologically. And this is the biblical answer to this. But this is not the answer that Kerry Shook is giving. And as a result of it, the answer he's getting is giving is completely unsatisfactory. And this appeal to so-called free will or free choice, let's just put it this way. Okay. Scripture makes it clear in no uncertain terms that we do not have free will when it comes to the things of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 6, here's what it says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. In other words, when it comes to the things of God, you do not have free will. Scripture says you have a bound will. Your will is bound, and you are hostile to God, and you will not submit to God's law as a result of it. This is part and parcel of it. So the idea is is that Christians are those whom God has regenerated. They've been 
reborn. They've been born again, born from above. And this takes place through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So that what happens is, is that you don't choose God. He, in fact, has chosen you. And he's given you faith and repentance so that you then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance, and he has regenerated you. This is the doctrine of regeneration. But Kerry shook here because he has a, well, it's a deficient view of sin. He doesn't correctly understand just how deep the condition of sin runs in humanity. As a result of it, he's going to have a deficient view of salvation as well, and he's not going to see the obvious as to what the scriptures are saying. He has, and so when he's answering the question, why do bad things happen to good people? His answer is absolutely not biblical. It's not even helpful. We continue. In fact, I'm going to back it up just a little bit so that you can hear this again as we listen to Carrie Shook. Why do bad things happen to good people? Even more disturbing to me is why good things happen to bad people. That bothers me a lot more. I'm going to pause there. Why do good things happen to bad people? That would be the gospel, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, because the good news that Christ died for our sins, that's God doing something good for evil and sinful people, which we just read in Romans 5, right? God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. And yet he's completely oblivious to these biblical categories. And the Bible doesn't give us all the answers to this really difficult question, but the Bible does say several things. It says that God is a good and loving God, that God doesn't cause evil, that God is a loving God. He doesn't cause bad things to happen to us. Okay, now, although this is true, it's not sufficient because there's data that's missing. But he has definitely given us this powerful thing called free will. He gives us the and no, he hasn't. That's nowhere found in Scripture. The Scriptures make it clear that all of us by nature have a bound will, power to choose whether or not we want to love him back, whether or not we want to do the right things, whether or not we want to obey him or sin. Because if God created us with a computer chip in our brain that made us do the right things all the time and never sin and always love God back then it really wouldn't be love because love is not love unless you have the power to choose not to love. Now, again, that's not a biblical argument. That's a philosophical argument. And unfortunately, the clear passages of Scripture flat out contradict this. There's many Christians out there who will talk about free will, free will, free will. It's not found in the Bible. You have a bound will. And so God had to give us this thing called free will where we have the power to choose even to reject him. We have the power to choose whether we love him or not. And sometimes we make sinful choices that are destructive in our lives and in the lives of others. Sometimes? How about daily? So one of the reasons why evil happens and suffering happens is because human beings make sinful choices. There's selfishness. Greed, racism, adultery, murder, lies. Sin causes destructive things to happen in our lives and in the lives of others. Doesn't explain. This is true. And it's important that we recognize that we are born with a corrupted and broken human nature. 
that is sinful. The reason why we sin is because we are sinners. Everything. But the Bible does tell us that God is a loving God. He doesn't cause bad things to happen. He's all loving and he's all powerful. So what that means is there are times when God allows evil into our lives. There are times where God allows suffering into our lives. There are times when God allows bad things into our lives because... You are aware that all of us are dying. Every single one of us is heading to a grave. The death rate is still 100% for every human being. If God is all loving, but yet he is all powerful, he has the power to stop those bad things from happening. So the questions are, why can't God just let the consequences be on the person who commits the sin rather than affect everybody else? And yet the gospel tells us that Jesus, the sinless one, the righteous one, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And yet that's not the good news that it's like he's, he's, it's not even on his radar. God, why can't you just stop that? God, why, why do you allow bad things in our lives? Because you're all powerful. You could stop it. And it's true. God could stop it. He's all powerful. I think one of the biggest mistakes Christians make is to pridefully act like they know all the answers to this question. Now, um, that's a, truly a problem. But where God's word speaks, we can speak confidently. Where God's word is silent, we should remain silent. And God's word speaks very clearly to this question. Therefore, we're not know-it-alls or acting pridefully when we confidently and lovingly give the, the biblical answer to this question. That they know the answer to the question, why bad things happen to good people. And none of us know all the answers. The Bible gives us a lot of answers, but nobody knows all the answers. And yet, Scripture makes it clear, there is no one good except for God. And when someone is hurting, at times a believer will come to them, whether it's a believer who's hurting or a non-believer who's hurting, and, and they'll say, hey, God's going to take care of you. Don't doubt. Don't fear. Don't worry. Just be positive. And someone's broken and hurting and bleeding on the inside. And we just give some trite answer. Hey, all things work together for good. It's going to be okay. Or even worse, um, you know what? Your sin probably brought this on. In judgment. I think that's the worst mistake that believers can make. Because God doesn't call me to be the all-knowing answer man when someone is hurting. But he calls me to be the love and compassion of Jesus to them. And I, I've stood with many people at the greatest time of grief and tragedy. I've stood with many parents who've lost a child. I've stood with many husbands who've lost their wife. Many wives who've lost their husbands. I've stood with many people at the deepest, darkest hours of their life. And I am not the all-knowing answer man. I don't know all the answers as to why. I ask the question too, why God? I don't understand it. Why, God? But I know this. He is a loving God, and He has called me not to be the answer man, but He's called me to be the love and compassion of Christ. And that's what we do. That's why our pastors... How is it compassionate and in line with the love of Christ to not biblically answer this question and give the correct answer that is so clearly written there? You see, there's actually some comfort to be said about properly understanding 
that bad things do not happen to good people, that none of us are good, and that Christ, the only one who truly was good, he suffered our punishment in our place and is offering us a full and complete pardon so that he can save sinners like you and like me. Yeah, this is just absolutely mind-boggling and baffling. And it shows me that because Kerry Shook does not understand the biblical teaching regarding original sin, that he's flailing around here. He doesn't actually know the answer to the question, yet the Bible answers it so clearly. When they stand with someone who's hurting, we don't judge, we don't tell them all the answers. Oh, here's all the answers. We love them. We're there for them. The word comfort in the Greek literally means to strengthen by being with. And that's what God does because even if you knew all the answers, it wouldn't comfort your soul. Even if you knew all the answers, it wouldn't satisfy the deepest longings in your heart. And yet the gospel does comfort my soul. And the good news that Christ died for my sins and forgives me, even though I was born dead in trespasses and sins, satisfies the deepest longings of my soul. So we don't always know the answers as to why God does what he does in suffering. In fact, it's probably the wrong question to ask because even if we knew the reason why, it wouldn't comfort us. What we need is not all the answers. We need the answer. And I don't know all the answers. And if you're looking for a pastor who knows all the answers to all your spiritual questions, don't join this church. But I do. Yeah, apparently you don't expect him to understand the biblical answer to this question. Because uh, if you expect him to know it, then you got to find a different church. You should, people who attend this church should take him up on this offer. Do you know this? I know the answer, Jesus Christ. And we point people to the answer, Jesus Christ. I don't have all the answers, but I, I do know the Bible has a lot of answers as to why we go through suffering. But it doesn't tell us all the answers, but it just points us to the answer for comfort and restoration. But I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. So would you open your Bibles to First Peter? And would you stand in honor of God's Word and just read this out loud with me? So we're going to get a single verse. Don't be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Dear God, I thank you that you're here right now, that you're in this place. And God, I, I thank you that you are the answer. Every one of us have questions and doubts. And some people here today have some deep, deep questions. And some people here today are going through the most painful time they've ever gone through in their life. So I pray that you would let us know that you're here right now. You'd make your presence felt and you would help everyone here realize that you are the answer that we can turn to for comfort and strength and restoration. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to point this out. He's right that Jesus is the answer. That's technically correct, but it's insufficient because he doesn't explain the biblical reasons as to why Jesus is the answer. So although he's right, his answer is insufficient. Now, I want to point something else out here. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 is not a verse that tells us about general, generic suffering that all human beings 
may or may not experience over the course of their lifetime. It's talking about a very specific kind of suffering, and we know this when we apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. And those three rules are context, context, and context. Let me let me read this to you. Uh, I'm going to add some more context to the end of this passage so you can see what type of suffering Peter is encouraging the Christians that he's writing to regarding. Here's what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So first Peter chapter four isn't talking about generic universal suffering that all human beings are subject to. Instead, it's talking about suffering as a Christian, suffering insult for the name of Jesus Christ, persecution, maybe even martyrdom. That's the type of suffering that uh, Peter here is addressing in 1 Peter chapter 4. And so what Kerry Shook did is point to this passage as somehow comforting us But when you look at the context, this is off-topic. He's not applying the correct biblical texts to his sermon. We continue. You can be seated. Now, I want you to notice in that verse, it says, don't be surprised at the painful trials. That is, don't be surprised when pain and suffering comes into your life. It's just part of life down here on this earth. No, this is talking specifically about suffering for the name of Jesus, suffering as a Christian. Everyone goes through it. But then he says, those who suffer according to God's will. Underline that phrase, suffer according to God's will. I say that because that tells me that sometimes it's God's will for me to go through suffering. Sometimes God allows bad things and problems into my life and it's part of God's will because some Christians say... Now again... Technically, this is true, but this passage is not talking about generic suffering. It's also, it's here talking about suffering in the name of Christ, suffering as a Christian. And while this passage gives us comfort that we know that should that happen to us, this is in accord with God's will. Oh, if you're going through a tough time, you must be out of God's will. Oh, if you're going through pain and suffering and problems, you're doing something wrong because God wants to bless you all the time. And and you're out of God's will. No, this says you can be right in the middle of God's will and be going through suffering. And that's when I ask, why? God, why? But why is usually the wrong question. But there's several other questions that the Bible says we should ask when we're going through pain and problems. The first question is, where is this problem leading me? God often uses problems to point us in a new direction because problems never leave us where they found us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, I am glad not because it hurt you, but because the pain turned you to God. 
Sometimes God uses problems to redirect us. We see so many examples. Okay, I'm going to pause there again. Um, what is this passage referring to? Is this talking about generic suffering? Um, no, this is not talking about generic suffering. Okay, let's put this in. Notice I didn't even hear him. He just said Second Corinthians chapter 7. Yeah, we need a verse on this, but it just so happened to have it. Uh, we'll start at verse 5. Here's what Paul writes to the uh, church of Corinth. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I had made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, but for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that the earnestness of us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. So what's Paul referring to here? Well, in 1 Corinthians, he wrote some very strong words. In fact, uh, one of the uh, members of the church in Corinth was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul rebuked him, put him out of the church, disciplined him, right? And and Paul said very strong words to correct and rebuke the false things and the sinful things that were happening in the church of Corinth. And this caused them to grieve. This is what this is about. And their grief led to repentance. That's the topic here in 2 Corinthians 7. This is not talking about generic suffering, but the suffering that people experienced as a result of the discipline that God was putting on them as a result of the Apostle Paul confronting them with their sin and disciplining them. You see? So here we've got two passages that Carrie Shook has now cited regarding suffering that are completely and utterly off topic. It's in Scripture of this, and I can tell you there are people who intend to harm you. There are people in the sin-sick world who will stab you in the back, who will hurt you, who will intend to bring evil on you. But God can take that and somehow turn it into good. God uses problems to redirect me. So I want to ask, where's this problem leading me? Talked to a lot of people who said, you know, Carrie, five years ago, I lost my job and I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was the very thing God used to get me thinking in a new direction. And I'm so thankful now that I look back on it. There's so many things that have happened in my life that I look back on and I say, thank you, God, you were directing me. You were protecting me. You were guiding me. I just didn't know it at the time. It felt really bad at the time. It felt like you were abandoning me at the time. So I want to ask myself, where is this problem leading me? And then secondly, I want to ask, what is this problem revealing about me? 
Because problems don't change us as much as they expose us. Whatever is inside a tube of toothpaste comes out when you squeeze it. And whatever is inside of me comes out when the pressure's on. But I like to say, wow, that wasn't really like me. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I lost my cool. That's not like me. I must be under a lot of stress. No, it is exactly like me because whatever's on the inside of me is going to come out when I'm under stress, when I'm under pressure. It just reveals what was already there that I didn't know was there. Well, and it should be revealing to you that you have a sinful nature. Whenever you're under pressure, the real you comes out. I mean, we could all be wonderful people if we were on a beautiful tropical island on vacation constantly. No, actually we can't. Your sinful nature will be traveling with you, not in your luggage, but on your, in your very being. If you travel to a tropical island, it doesn't matter if you were born on a deserted island and raised by the angels. You will still have a sinful nature and therefore be a sinner. I'm a, I'm a beautiful person on vacation. Unless it's one of those driving vacations in the car with the whole family. I'm not, then I'm not so beautiful. But when the pressure is on in life, what really is inside us comes out. So I want to ask myself, what is this really revealing about my character? In Deuteronomy 8, 2, it says, The Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to test you in order to know what was in your heart. God really already knows what was in their heart. He just wanted them to see it. And they had to wander in the desert 40 years so they could see what was in their heart and how their character needed to change so they could be the people God had called them to be. And God shows me what's in my character. And if I admit it and I say, God, begin to change me, then he starts to change me. And I want to ask, what is this problem? Okay, admit it and then ask God to change me. Okay, let me rephrase that. Confess it. What about be forgiven for it? He's got the confession part down, but what's missing is the forgiveness of sins. And so, on, again, we're dealing with an insufficient um, answer here. Let me give you a, a passage. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So what's the, the missing piece here? Let me back this up so that you can again hear what he said. Notice what's missing is there's confession. We want life change. But where's the forgiveness? That's the part we also need. So it's insufficient just to say, God, I blew it. Please change me. It needs to be, God, I blew it. Please forgive me and change me heart. He just wanted them to see it. And they had to wander in the desert 40 years so they could see what was in their heart and how their character needed to change so they could be the people God had called them to be. And God shows me what's in my character. And if I admit it and I say, God, begin to change me, then he starts to change me. And I want to ask, what is this problem teaching me? That's the third thing. What is this problem teaching me? Sometimes you can only learn from being burned. When you were a kid and your parents told you, don't touch the hot stove, what did you do? 
you touched the hot stove. You made it a point to do that. That was real smart, but you did it. Because sometimes you only learn by being burned. And some things you only learn by going through pain. And sometimes you only learn the value of something by losing it. You learn the value of money by losing it. You learn the value of a relationship by losing it. Sometimes you only learn the value of something by losing it. Sometimes we only learn by being burned through the pain and the problems. And God teaches us. C.S. Lewis said, pain is the greatest teacher. And it's so true. But then I also want to ask, how is this problem growing me? Because that's God's ultimate purpose through suffering, is to grow us to maturity, to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. In James chapter 1, it says, When you have many kinds of troubles, you should be full of joy, because you know that these troubles test your faith. And this will give you patience. Then you will be mature and complete. God wants to mature your character. His number one goal in your life is to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice the text said, test your faith. Faith, faith. God's testing your faith. I don't know about you, but problems and pain and suffering chip away the rough edges of my character to make me more like Jesus Christ. The people that I've met who are the most beautiful on the inside and the most spiritual people and wonderful people are those who've been through a lot of suffering because they look most like Jesus Christ. Well, I want to stop right here and take some of your Twitter questions and... Yeah, believe it or not, that's it for the teaching portion of the sermon, at least uh, the, you know, the outline sermon part. Now he's going to field questions that are being sent to him via Twitter. So we're going to put up a few that we have time to put up. So the guys, what's been coming in? Why do we sometimes find ourselves making the same mistake that we swore to ourselves we would never make again and it keeps happening? Because we have a sinful nature. The Apostle Paul writes about this very clearly in Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bible, flip on over there. It's a, it's a fantastic passage that helps explain the struggle that Christians go through. And even the great Apostle Paul struggled with this himself. Uh, Romans chapter 7, I'll start at, uh, at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Talking about the law. Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very things that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he's speaking as a Christian, but I see that in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then even I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, the Scriptures answer this question straight up in Romans chapter 7. And the, the reason is, can be boiled down to this. Why is it that you continue to struggle with your sin? The reason why is because there are two things that are, that are correct about you. And they, it seems paradoxical. And it's boiled down to, uh, Romans chapter 7 could be boiled down to the Latin phrase, that we are all simul justus et peccator. That means that we are all, well... Just, we are declared to be righteous, Eustace, and we are peccator. That means that we are sinners at the same time. So we are sinner saints this side of Christ's return in our resurrection. But in the life to come, we will only be saints. We will no longer have a sinful flesh and be sinners. So that's the reason why. But let's see what Carrie Shook does with the answer to this question. I think that's just the human condition. Unfortunately, sometimes we learn by being burned several times. And I think another reason, though, is we don't ask the right questions. We don't stop to say, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? We just say, God, get me out of this. God, get me out. And we just look for ways to get out. And sometimes we take shortcuts. I know in my life there have been times where God was doing something to change my character. He was working in my heart and he was bringing me through a problem to change my character in an area. Notice that Kerry Shook is answering this question by not going to a biblical text like I did, but going to his life experiences. Maybe the reason why you keep sinning is because you haven't stopped to ask the question, uh, why God, uh, you know, what are you trying to teach me? What verse says that? I can't think of any. That he knew I needed to change in to be who he wanted me to be. And I just look for a shortcut and I get out of it. And whenever you look for a shortcut, God always brings it back around. It's the story of the children of Israel who kept taking laps around Mount Sinai. And some of you are going, man, this looks so familiar to me. I think I've gone through this exact same problem before. We go through these issues over and over and over and over and over again in our personal lives. And God says, I just, I'm just going to keep bringing you through this until you get it because I really want you to get this. Because I love you too much. So... All right, next question. What do you say to a friend who turns away from God instead of towards God because of the suffering that he allows? That happens a lot. I, the people that I know who are closest to God have gone through the most suffering. Let me give you a, um, a suggestion here. Particular types of suffering, there is no easy way to comfort people. None whatsoever. Okay? I would recommend a book that you read but not give to somebody in the depths of despair. Okay, um, It'll help you understand the whole grieving process. And it's a book written by C.S. Lewis entitled A Grief Observed. A Grief Observed. Um, you don't give this to somebody in the, in the deepest, darkest part of their grieving and suffering. But as they're starting to come out of it, this may be a book to uh, hand to them. But you need to read it first so that you understand what you're giving to people. But again, the C.S. Lewis is a grief observed. He wrote this book upon the death of his wife. He, he was married for a short amount of time. He's pretty much a bachelor for the, uh, his entire adult life. And then he met an American woman and just fell madly in love. And their marriage didn't last too long because she came down with cancer and ended up dying. 
And in this book kind of walks through the dark night of the soul that uh, C.S. Lewis went through. And uh, it's worth reading, at least uh, in that sense. But, um, you know, I, I just put that out as something to help along these lines. In this particular case, I'm looking for more of a practical answer, not necessarily um, one that is straight up a biblical one. You get what I'm saying? But the, the biblical answers are found in that book, and there's cl- plenty of clear biblical passages that basically teach that there is a time for mourning. Let people mourn. Death is unnatural, and the the, the mourning process needs to be gone through. And as they're going through it, help point them to the fact that there is hope in Christ. Rather than turning away from God, the solution is in the cross and in what Christ has done by dying on the cross for our sins. We continue. Some of the people I know who are bitter at God have gone through a lot of suffering. And I always say you can get bitter or better. And the difference between bitter and better is just one letter, I. I have to make that choice. And so you have to... Suffering doesn't make you more like Christ unless you choose to ask these questions and trust God through it. But I also say that when you're going through suffering, you should pour your heart out to God. Your anger, your fear, your frustration, just tell Him how mad you are at Him. And so when a friend of yours is bitter at God and asking questions and mad at God, I think the best thing to do is just love them. Be there for them and love them. That's what God's doing. If you want to be Jesus to them instead of going... I'm going to stand about 20 feet away from you right now because I'm afraid you're going to get struck by a bolt of lightning anytime. So, next question. Why are there so many religions, denominations, when it seems like we all believe in the same God? Oh, that's real simple. That's another, uh, that is another symptom of our sinful nature. The reason why there are different denominations is because um, people refuse to bend the knee to what God's Word says. If we're going to all unite, we need to unite around sound biblical doctrine. And that means that if there's a doctrine that the Scriptures clearly teach that disagrees with your theology, you need to bend the knee to what God's Word says rather than start your own denomination. Um, That's because of the human condition, again. (laughs) Because we're sinners and it's hard for us to get along. And Jesus said the way that they'll know that you're a believer is that you love each other for your love. That's the way it should be. And Jesus also prayed, Heavenly Father, I pray that they'll be one. So his big prayer was that we would be united. So it was never his intent for there to be all these denominations. But that's just what happens over time. And all that really matters, according to God's Word, is that you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you believe God's Word and you follow it with all your heart, that's what it comes down to. So all the labels, here's the good news, all those labels will be gone when we get to heaven. Finally be gone. That's why we believe in working together with other churches. Um, as long as they believe in Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ and believe His Word and lifting up Jesus, we're going we're to work with them. We may not agree on every doctrinal issue, But we're going to agree on the main things. We're going to work together on the main things to reach people for the kingdom of God. Why are some people born or develop physically damaged handicap when they didn't make any bad decisions? Um, Okay, now this is an important question. Okay, you you can look at it from a meta point of view, like high above. 
Or you can look at it kind of down on the micro point of view. The meta answer to this is that the reason why these things happen here on this planet is because of our sin. Um, And we're not talking about a specific sin except for Adam's sin. It's because of Adam's sin that we've all inherited, that we all have a sinful nature, and that is why these types of things happen. Now, where people go wrong is where they basically try to pin it down to a specific sin that a particular person has committed other than Adam. Um, Like my great-grandfather did such and such a thing, and therefore that's the reason why uh, this child was born with this whatever. Yeah, that that does not happen that way, okay? So you have to talk about the, the, the general condition of the world and don't jump to the conclusion that God is punishing a particular sin by a particular person. Does that make sense? We continue. That's a question I don't know the answer to. Um, but I do know this. That in Scripture, there was a man who was needing healing. And the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, none of them did. But this man uh, was allowed to have this so that he could bring glory to God. Nick Vojcic is a good friend of mine, and he was born with no arms and no legs. And right up here on the stage, I asked Nick, I said, if, because I wanted to ask him this, I always want to ask this, Nick, if God came to you today and said, I can miraculously give you back your arms and your legs, would you say yes to God? And he said, no. I realize now that God has allowed me to have this handicap so that his name is glorified even more. He said, now don't get me wrong. I used to question God all the time and I, and there are times when it's really frustrating and I get angry. But no, I know God is using this to glorify his name. And he's preached to millions around the world because of it. Next, while going through our bad season in life, how do we know that God is leading our way and in control? I, I think that The only way is just to trust that his word is true because there are times when God is silent and there are times when you're going through a tough time and you're praying for God to take you out of the tough time and he doesn't. But that's when you have to trust him to say, God, I know that you know what you're doing and I don't like it. And you can gripe and complain to him and and question him. And he says, bring that on. But at the end of the day, you have to say, God, I trust you that even though I don't feel you right now, you say you'll never leave me or forsake me. See, you don't have to pray if you're a believer. Jesus, be with us today. That's a prayer that a lot of people pray as Christians. Lord God, please be with us today. You don't have to. He's with you. He's in you. So he, whether you feel him or not. One more question. Is it okay to be friends with an atheist? Oh, definitely. Um, Jesus always hung out with people who weren't believers. That's what they accused him of. He hangs around the drunks and the sinners. That was the big accusation the religious people told him. Um, Right now in our midst, I know there's probably several atheists right here. And I want to say welcome. We love atheists and agnostics coming to our church. We've had so many people come to our church. I'll never forget one of our first membership classes. A guy came up to me afterwards and said, I've been an atheist all my life. My dad's a big atheist. I've been an atheist. Um... But somebody gave me one of your message CDs and it just really moved me. And I said, well, Stephen, that's God. And we began to talk. And that next week, Pastor Randy led him to Christ. And he's been on fire for God ever since. But I tell you many stories. Great family in our church who who came to our church 
a couple of years ago, and the dad was an atheist all his life. And we got to baptize them last year out here, the whole family. And um, it's just really cool to see what God does in people's lives. We're all in the same boat. We all need Jesus, whatever you call yourself, an atheist, agnostic, or whatever. But I think we ought to hang around atheists. We ought to hang around agnostics. All right, I want to now go back into that question about suffering by asking in a different way. What about healing? Does God still heal today? Why doesn't God heal everyone? Do they not have faith? What's going on here? And in James 5, it says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. So there are four kinds of healing. Because I do believe God heals today. First is physical healing. And I believe with all my heart that God heals physically today. God heals today. We see it over and over again in our church. Physical healing. We need to pray for physical healing. But then also emotional healing is just as important. God heals broken emotions. And then relational healing. I've seen God heal marriages that you thought had no hope. God heals relationships today. And then spiritual healing is the most important healing of all. How God heals our sin-sick souls and brings forgiveness. Spiritual healing. I want now, notice that that was the first occurrence that we really truly heard about forgiveness. And yet, this entire sermon topic lends itself to constantly referring us back to Christ and His cross for the forgiveness of our sins. I want you, though, to underline, call the elders of the church. This is, is any one of you sick, he should call the elders. The elders are the pastors, the ministry leaders of the church. And it's saying that if you're sick physically, then you can call one of the pastors or the elders or go to one of them for prayer time. So I always have these prayer times after the service. Go to them and they'll pray for you for healing. And that you're to ask them to pray for you. And then it says they'll anoint him with oil. Now, there's nothing magical about the oil. It just represents the Holy Spirit. Oil is always representative of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is the one who heals. The pastors can't heal. The source of healing is Jesus Christ through His Spirit. And so there's nothing magical about the oil. We anoint with oil here because the Bible says that we just believe God's Word. And so we do what God's Word says. But the oil is powerful because it represents the Holy Spirit. Not because the oil itself is powerful, because the Holy Spirit is powerful. It just obeying Scripture, saying the Holy Spirit can pray. And it says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. We're going to believe God for healing today. In a, in a miracle kind of way. Isaiah 53, 5 says, Now notice what he does with this passage. Pay close attention to the fact that here you've got the gospel in there and he's not going to connect the dots to the biblical, uh, to this, pas- this passage regarding the gospel. He's only going to connect the dots from this passage, well, to the healing reference. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Right, there's the gospel right there. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The gospel right there and talking about why did bad things happen to good people? Why did all this bad happen to Jesus? He was the only good one among us because he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. But that's not where he's going to, he's not going to highlight that for us. And by his wounds, we are healed. Just the by his wounds, we are healed. See, he uses the word healed. So that means that we believe in healing. Which is to miss the whole point of that text, by the way. 
You say, well, Carrie, why doesn't God heal everyone? Is it because they have a lack of faith? No. Uh, some of the most godly men and women I've ever known, you know, got sick. They prayed for healing, believed God could heal them, but then they died. So, no, I, I don't think it's a lack of faith. I just think that God always heals. He just does it in three ways. First, immediate healing. I've seen it so many times where we pray for healing and God does a miracle because he is the healer, not us. But then there's delayed healing. It's the process of healing. Sometimes God takes us through a process. I've seen it in relationships where God heals over a period of time. I've seen it in sickness where God heals over a period of time because sometimes he wants to change us in the circumstance. So he doesn't change the circumstance. He takes us through the circumstance. He doesn't change the circumstance. He changes me in the circumstance. And then I think God uses doctors and hospitals and and the wisdom that they've gleaned because all truth is God's truth. And I've got a lot of doctor friends who are believers who say, you know what, I can do the surgery, but God heals. God's the one who does the healing. And then there's ultimate healing. That's heaven. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more disease. That's heaven. Which exactly is, I think, what Isaiah 53 is pointing us to. The reason I say that is because all of us eventually die. Death rate is still 100% for every human being. No more tears in heaven. You see, on this earth, you may get healed 20 times with immediate healing or delayed healing. But you'll still experience the ultimate healing because we're all going to die one day. Exactly. Right. Which is why we. this comes back to there's the reason why. Well, the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is, well, there's no good people. That's why we all die. The wages of sin is death. Sometimes, I don't understand it, but sometimes God doesn't heal on this earth physical illness, but the person experiences ultimate healing. But I do know this too, that I think most churches and most believers today don't pray for healing like we should. We don't pray enough for healing. We don't believe enough for healing. And we do here at our church. We believe God still heals today. And that's the end of the message. I apologize. It ends abruptly, but that's how the folks over there at uh, the Woodlands... Uh, church cut it up. So, yeah, it, there was a lot of truth in there. And there was a lot of error in there. And there was a lot of insufficient truth in there as well. Yeah, and especially considering the fact that God's Word speaks so clearly to these things, it makes me wonder why would any Christian pastor not give the sure and certain biblical answer to this very important question. Hmm. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>